All right. I'm scared. <laughs> I was scared there for a second. All right. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is We Know, and this is a really exciting title, We Know Part 2. And so, for those of you who thought Part 1 was scintillating, you've got Part 2 here, and you're going to get Part 3. So, I spoil that for you for next week too, but we're, we're wrapping up here. We're down to the last three verses of the letter that was written by John to these believers that he had spent a lot of time with and had taught many things about the Word of God and things that he had learned directly from Jesus himself. So we know. And when you're thinking about that title, it made me think about young people. But this could be true of your coworker. It could be true of anybody that you're trying to give some instruction to, especially if you've given them instruction before. And this is going to now be repeat instruction. So I'm sure many of you have experienced this with young people, but a common response by children to you when you're trying to give them instruction is, I know. So you'll say, hey, you need to do this, 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 or this, and they'll be like, I know. (laughs) And the thing of it is, is that that's always true when they think they know, but they're not doing things the way they've been instructed. They're actually not following the instruction, but they're saying, I, th- I know, or at least I believe that I know. And the parents reply to that very often is, do you really? Or, then why aren't you doing it? Maybe that's just me. M- most of you are probably kinder and gentler than that. Then why aren't you doing it? If you know, then why aren't you doing it? And when you're thinking about the Christian life, or you're thinking about life in general, knowledge itself provides little benefit apart from practical application in your life. There's all kinds of things that you could know in terms of just cognitive knowledge. You could just have an understanding about it on a more cerebral or mental level, but it's not being applied to your life. And when it's not being applied to your life, it has very little benefit to you. So John realized that any application of Christian truths was directly linked to present enjoyment of personal, intimate fellowship with God. He recognized that no one who wasn't presently walking with their eyes lifted up, with their gaze fixed on vertical things, with their, their vision being focused on the author and finisher of their faith, that nobody who wasn't doing that would be presently living a life that would be practically applying the Christian truths that John had been seeking to instruct them in or make them aware of. And so you could have all of the head knowledge in the world, but without a, a walk of faith, without present fellowship with the Father without the Spirit's direction in your life, without God's Spirit working in and through you, there would be no practical change or effect on your life. There'd be nothing that would occur in your visible life that would be consistent with your position in Christ. So you'd have all these positional truths about who you are in Christ and what he's done for you, but it wouldn't translate to your life, to Christian living. It wouldn't translate to your way of going about things if the Spirit of God wasn't the one directing and working. And the Spirit of God won't be the one directing or working unless you're presently keeping your eyes focused on Him, being occupied with your Savior, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, which is one of my very favorite verses. So as you're thinking about all of those things, the general flow of thought that John has been trying to communicate to these believers has been that there's these fixed Christian truths that need to find their way into application in your life. Because if you're not presently enjoying that intimacy of fellowship, then presently your life isn't going to be a reflection of what God has as far as his plan for you, his purpose for you, his will for you. It's not going to be consistent with his word either. And so if you're following the general flow of thought, it's effectively you are God's children. Like, let's start with that as a statement of fact. You are God's children. Then he moved on to basically say, full or maximum joy can only be experienced through present intimate fellowship with God. And then he moved on from that to say, you can live life with him. You have that opportunity to live life with him. That's what it means to have present intimate fellowship with God, to live life with him. But that requires a choice on your part. And if you 
continued that flow of thought, it would say, at any point in time, one's present manner of living is either the byproduct of the Spirit's influence or the influence of the Christian's enemies. And that's what we're getting into now. At at any point in time, your present manner of living is either going to be the byproduct of having been influenced by God and His Spirit working in and through you, or it's going to be the byproduct of the enemy. Now, what are the Christian's enemy? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all going to have been covered either in the verse we looked at last week, verse 18, or here in verse 19 here this morning. And so then when you think about the culmination of all that, God never directs your life in a manner that's inconsistent, inconsistent with his word. He never directs your life in a manner that's inconsistent with his will. He never directs your life in a manner that's inconsistent with his plan and his purpose for your life. And so what John is trying to summarize, and he's been going through many examples throughout the the letter that he wrote here, is that when your life is inconsistent with God's direction, plan, purpose, will, or word, when that is true of you in any particular moment in time, then in that moment in time, that's a litmus test or a reminder that right now you're not walking by means of the Spirit of God. Right this moment, you're not responding to God directly. You're not enjoying life with Him. You're not leaning into Him. You're not drawing near to Him. You're not keeping your focus on Him. You don't have a vertical mindset. Because if you had a vertical mindset in that moment, then the Spirit of God would be directing you in ways that are consistent with a life or a walk of intimate fellowship with Him. And they would be ways that would be consistent with His character and who He is. And so the focus wouldn't have to be on the, on the byproduct or the manifestation of that intimate fellowship. The focus should be on, let's stay in fellowship. Let's continue to live life with God. Let's not exclude him from our lives. Let's include him in the things that we're doing. Let's include him in the thoughts that we're thinking, the words that we're saying, in addition to then the things that we're doing. And if that's true with the thoughts that we're thinking, the words that we're saying, and the things that we're doing, then we'll have a life that's well-pleasing to him, which is ultimately the goal of every, or should be the goal of every Christian. It's certainly God's desire for you. And so that's been sort of what John has been building to or trying to explain in a variety of different ways throughout this letter. And now we're to the conclusory statements, the review or summary statements. And we noticed or observed last week that there's three of them, that John chose to end chapter 5 with these three summary statements or review statements. And they all begin with this, this word, we know. We have this understanding that can be relied upon because the source of that truth is God himself. And so because the source of that truth, that cognitive awareness, that information that has been taught to us, because the source of that information is God himself, and because God is without error, we can absolutely rely upon these things as critical points of understanding for living the Christian life the way that God intended. And so there's three of them. We're moving on here, Lord willing, to our second one. But last week we saw that sin is never an expression of the new nature or present fellowship. The character or the spirit of God is so completely incompatible with sin that sin is never produced in your life as an expression of God's spirit. That was, that's the takeaway. And John has said that numerous times throughout this letter that don't be deceived. Don't think that sinfulness is being manifested or produced by God's spirit or the new nature because sin is absolutely incompatible with God. God wouldn't ever produce that manner of living in your life. And so sin is not of God because God is exempt from or separate from or incompatible with sin. So now we'll move on to the second summary statement in verse 19. So if you're not there already, turn to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to read verse 18, which was our first summary statement, and then we'll move on to verse 19, our second. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll conclude this this book with our third summary statement. But verse 18, we know, there's that word, we know, that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, if you weren't here for that message, you can go listen to that message. You could also go listen to the message on 1 John 3.19, which covered, or 3.9, let's see, where did this one is it? 3.9, go back to our website and look up that message on Sermon Audio and listen to that. 
The idea, though, is that it's not that believers do not sin. It's that sin in a believer's life is never the product or produced by or manifestation of the Spirit of God working at that present point in time. Of course, believers sin. Believers, then once they have sinned, have to acknowledge or recognize that their thinking is out of whack, that their, their thinking is out of alignment with God. They have to agree with God again to acknowledge and say the same thing as God through confessing or acknowledging that sin so that they can turn their eyes or lift their eyes back to the Lord. Now, acknowledging that you've been off track to me is simple. To acknowledge that you've been off track, one, it's a quick mental thing, but two, the solution is easy. Get your eyes off of the track that you're on and get your eyes back on the Lord who will then direct you to the proper path for your life. And there's never a time when you're too far gone to do that. There's never a time that you've strayed too far for the Lord to make changes and redirect you. He can take you wherever you are, no matter how stubborn you've been, no matter how much you refuse to look at the map, no matter how much you've refused to read the guidebook, no matter how much you've refused to listen to the GPS, no matter how turned around you get. He says, I can point you in the right direction. But you're going to have to see that you're in a place that's not fitting for you and you're going to have to reorient your eyes to me so that I can lead and direct you in the path that I want you to go. It's not complicated. That's as simple as it is. So John has been expressing that here in verse 18 that sin is never a byproduct or a characterization or a manifestation of God's spirit or the new nature. It's always our flesh that is involved in that. And so when you're thinking about the enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil, 18 was focused on the flesh. It's the flesh or the byproduct of our former association with Adam, the old sin nature, that is what produces or influences us to want to move in a direction that's in opposition to God, even though we're his children. So now verse 19, we know, second thing we know here, that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of of the wicked one. Let's try to work our way through this. Verse 18. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies, that should say 19, that we are under the sway of the wicked one. But we know this. And so a little review here about what we know is all about. We're going to go fast through this because we covered this last week more so, but we know. So it includes John and these fellow believers who make up his audience. And as we read this today, the Spirit of God having undertaken to inspire every word that was written by John, knowing that it would become a part of the canon of Scripture, knowing that it would be for our benefit, it's effectively as though God is speaking through John to us this morning too. So we can say, we know. This is written to us as believers. This isn't written to unbelievers about how they can become children of God, how they can, become, they can be declared to be in a right standing with God on the basis of faith alone and Christ alone. This is a message about practical sanctification in the lives of Christians. That's the message of 1 John. And how can we live life in a way that would bring him glory? How can we experience the fullness of joy that's available only in his presence? And if you were to turn back to the first chapter, and if we were to look at verse 4, we would see that purpose statement. That's why this was written. It was written to believers. About what? Well, fellowship. That, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. But then he says, but truly, so the, that's actually secondary, to our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the focus. We're writing these things and declaring these things to you so that you could have fellowship with God Himself. And by having fellowship with God Himself, you could then enjoy fellowship with us, fellow believers in the faith. But what is the underlying purpose in all of it? The underlying purpose in the whole letter is verse 4, and these things we write to you that, there's the Heine clause, that your joy may be full. See, fullness of joy is only found through intimate fellowship with the Father, and that's what John has been all about. He's been writing to believers about maximizing the joy potential that is available in their lives. And you think, man, this is a book that would be very good for me then. I want to have joy in my life. And of course, we know from other passages of Scripture that that's just another way of saying the, thing, the same thing. It says that in your presence, there's fullness of joy is what the psalmist says. 
So if in your presence is where fullness of joy is found, then that's exactly what John is communicating here as he says, I want you to have full joy in your life. Well, if I want you to have full joy in your life and full joy can only be found in the presence of God himself, then what John is really advocating over and over throughout this book is that don't live life apart from him. Don't distance yourself from him. Don't go your own way. Don't do your own thing. Keep your eyes on me. Lean into me. Allow me to work in your life. And when that's true, you'll experience, as a byproduct of that, the fullness of joy that's available by spending life in his presence. Think about that. What an easy way to think about Christian living. It's either spent with him or it's spent apart from him. You know, just because of how many pages are in this book, it's easy to get lost in the details. It's easy to, it's easy to get lost in the nuances. And... It's fine to study the nuances. We open the Word of God every Sunday and every Wednesday here. We promote you reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God. We teach your kids the Word of God. We teach them Bible verses from the Word of God. But sometimes if you don't remember that, keep it simple, the simple part of it is not that complicated. God needed to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's the message of the Bible. That was true in, ter- in terms of dealing with the penalty of your sin, that the debt that you owed for your sin, and he accomplished that through the person and work of his son as his son became sin for you, as his son died in your place, as his son paid your debt, as he shed his blood in place of you shedding your blood. So the Bible communicates that because of your identification with sinfulness, there was a debt that was owed by sin, because of sin. The debt was estrangement or alienation or separation from God. God being perfectly holy and not being able to have any closeness to sin or be tainted by sin. So if you're identified with sinfulness and God is identified with holiness and purity and God can't be tainted by sin, then he can't be tainted by you unless something was done about your sin. And so how could a sinner ever be found to be in a right standing with a holy and just God? That's the question of justification. And this answer is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus gave up the glory of heaven, as God the Father bankrupt heaven, sending his, the most valuable thing of heaven, Jesus, his only son, into the world to die in the place of you and I to pay the penalty and the debt that was owed by all sinners for all time. So as Christ died on that cross, he wasn't dying for his sin, he was dying for your sin. He wasn't dying for his mistakes and trespasses and transgressions, he was dying for yours. He wasn't shedding blood that he rightfully should have shed, he was shedding blood that you rightfully should have shed. But as he died in your place, motivated by nothing but love, saying, I love you so much, that I will take your place. So as the innocent took the place of the guilty, God the Father looked at that and he said, that payment by my son fully satisfied the debt that was owed by all mankind. It didn't partially satisfy the debt that was owed by all mankind. It fully satisfied the debt that was owed by all mankind. And he says, now anyone who will, let them come and drink freely of the water that I offer. Anyone who wants to, put their confidence and trust in Christ's finished work on his behalf can be saved. Saved from what? Saved from a hell he deserves to a heaven he doesn't. Saved from spending an eternity separated from God on the basis of his identification with sinfulness. Spending an eternity in the place where God is not, which is the lake of fire. And instead, through simple faith in Christ's finished work on his behalf, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that person can be born into God's family. That's what we call the new birth. To be born again. Some people say, I'm a born again Christian. That means that you've had a spiritual birth in addition to a physical birth. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you're not going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus was confused. Nicodemus said, how could I be born again and crawl back into my mother's womb? I already had been born at a point in time physically. And Jesus says, you don't understand. It's not another physical birth that you need. It's a spiritual birth. That spiritual birth can only occur through believing in the substitutionary payment of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Not just believing in that, but believing in the exclusivity of it. That there's nothing then that you can contribute to it 
that you need to accept by faith alone what Christ has done for you as a free gift. And for it to be a free gift, it had to be freely given and freely received. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that for by grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, you're saved through faith. Faith is to be convinced or persuaded to put your trust in something. By faith, it is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So anybody who's not putting all of their eggs in the basket of faith in what Christ has done, and they're holding back just a little bit and saying, Christ did 99% of what needed to be done, but now it falls on me to maintain what he started, or to finish what he started, or to perfect what he started. I need you to ask yourself here this morning, if you believe that, ask yourself how insulting that is to Jesus Christ who the last words he cried as he died was, it is finished. And so if God dying, Jesus, God himself dying in your place declared that it was finished and God the Father recognized the sufficiency of that sacrifice by raising him from the dead as a testimony that he had accepted his sacrifice on your behalf, are you really prepared to sit here this morning and say, but I need to do my part. God didn't do enough through the sacrifice of his son. You see, when we think about being Christians, it's Christ that makes up the focus of the name. Have you put your faith in Christ and him alone? And I pray that you would if you haven't. You don't need to come forward to do that. You don't need to pray some kind of a prayer. You don't need to change your life. He's the one who will change your life when you put your faith in him. You need to decide, I'm going to quit trusting in myself or my rituals or my church or my human efforts. I'm going to put my faith in Christ alone. You can do that in the quiet of your own heart, right where you sit right now. And today might be the day of salvation for you, but there's no time to waste. You're not guaranteed another day. I did a funeral service on Friday. The fact of the matter is that people don't live indefinitely. You're not guaranteed another breath. I'm not guaranteed another breath. If, if I go down right now with a heart attack, as long as I'm a goner anyway, just leave me here, finish the service. I know <laughs> people are dropping their Bibles over that. <laughs> uh, all right, I digress. I hope you understand the gospel. We know. I don't even know how I got into that. Oh, it's because John is writing to believers. (laughs) He's not writing about how you can get saved. He's writing to people who are saved. So I hope you're saved so that when we go through the rest of this here this morning, he can be writing to you. I can be speaking to you because this is directed at you. So we know this is intuitive knowledge gained by instruction, not experiential knowledge. The idea is that this isn't something you have to have experienced or not. You don't have to have experienced this to know it's true. Why? Because it's something that can be known apart from experience. Why can we rely on it? Because it's known by believing in God's testimony. Because God says that this is true. We are of God. So we know, but what do we know? This is the first thing. There's two different things that John wants us to know here in this second summarizing statement that he has. He wants us to know two things. And he's going to use this medium of contrast that he's used throughout the book to summarize these positional and practical distinctions between believers and the lost. So he's going to set up, we know what? Well, we know we are of God, but what's the alternative? The whole world is of or under the sway of the wicked one. So this contrast, this is a summarizing statement. And there's so much that's loaded into this that we'll, we'll try to go quickly and get through it here this morning, but there's a lot to unpack here. So we are of God. It indicates that John and his readers are sourced in God. It's the first of two contrasting statements of fact. And what John is trying to do here is to remind his readers of their parentage. Who is your spiritual father? Well, we're of God. We're sourced in God as believers. And so I love the way it says that, you know, of understanding we are of God, we're sourced in God. It's talking about having been born of God, born into his family. We're now empowered 
by him as his very spirit takes up residence in us as a guarantee or a down payment of our future inheritance, the guarantee that gives us the confidence, not through arrogance, but through faith to say, I'm God's child, and because I'm God's child, he'll never let me go, and because he'll never let me go, I know for sure that I will go to heaven when I die. You see, so many Christians have been robbed of their assurance of salvation because they've been subtly told that you can never be quite sure. And the reason you can never be quite sure is because you need to look at your life. You need to look at yourself. You need to look at your manner of living and determine if you're really saved because if you really were saved, then your life would look a certain way. The Bible doesn't ever teach that. The Bible teaches that your life should look a certain way as a child of God because God wants to transform you and change you from what you were into something different, completely different. To change you from who you were in Adam to becoming more and more and more like Christ. But it doesn't guarantee that sanctification process will take place when I talk about practical sanctification. Now the Bible guarantees that a point in time if you put your faith in Christ, you will be declared to be in a right standing with God. We say that's called justification. So you'll be saved from the penalty of sin by simple faith at a point in time in Christ's provision for your sinfulness. You'll be declared righteous. That's guaranteed the moment you put your faith in Christ. And what's also guaranteed, as we cover repeatedly here, because this is so confusing to people, it causes them to misunderstand so many passages of the Bible. But the Bible, when it speaks of being saved, it speaks of being saved from the penalty of sin at a point in time. It speaks of being saved or rescued from or taken away from the very presence of sin at a point in time in the future with ongoing effects for all of eternity where God one day says I'm going to take sin away from you completely I'm going to take away the sin nature I'm going to give you a new body you'll be glorified we call that that's going to be guaranteed to happen to every person who at a point in time put their faith in Jesus Christ but what the whole New Testament is focused on most I would say most is on this process in time of Christian living this, this process of pro- progressively over time being set apart. We call that sanctification or practical sanctification. Now, positionally, you were set apart the moment that you were justified or declared to be in a right standing with God on the basis of your faith in Christ alone. You were set apart into God's family, and he says, nothing and no one will ever separate you from my love. Though you are faithless at times, I always remain faithful. So we have that guarantee that he says, I'm going to send my very spirit as the guarantee of your salvation to take up residence in, inside of you. I can tell you this, if the spirit of God is inside of you, the spirit of God is never going to hell. The spirit of God is your guarantee of the future inheritance that God promised you because of your point in time faith in his finished work alone. But now when you talk about practical sanctification, this process of being set apart for God's work here in time, God wants to use you. He says, come just as you are, but I don't want to leave you that way. I want to change you over time. I want to make you more and more a reflection of my son. I want you to die. I want you to set aside your former manner of living. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I want you to see yourself positionally as being crucified with Christ. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to see yourself as dying with Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and risen with Christ. Positionally, I want you to see that. Now, practically, I want you to allow my spirit to work in, through, in and through you as a yielded vessel, as a yielded instrument, as you keep your eyes fixed on me, as you get yourself out of the way, so to speak, as you stop fighting, you stop resisting, you stop preventing what I want to do in your life. I've got great things planned for you. But they're not great things that are planned for lifting you up and elevating you. I, w- I have great Things planned for you where I can use you to lift me up, to shine my light, to put the focus on me, to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. That's my mission for you. 
And as you see yourself as having died and been crucified with Christ, you're more likely, as you have that recognition of that positional standing in Christ, to trust Christ, to trust His Spirit, to depend on Him to work in you, to make you something different, to turn you into something that you're not. But that's not guaranteed. That's something that depends on will you in each moment At any point in time, day by day, moment by moment, will you trust me enough to let me work in you? And will you be walking by means of my spirit, leaning and operating in dependence on me? Will you be leaning into this relationship that you can have with me in the present, this intimate fellowship that you can experience with me in the moment? Will you stay close to me, draw nearer to me? Will you want to live life with me? Will you include me in your thinking? Will you include me in your words? Will you include me in your actions. That, that's sort of the idea here. So when we're of God, that is something that positionally we're of God in the sense that we're born into his family. But then there are certain aspects of Christian living that are the byproduct or produced by God in our lives. And so that's, I guess, the, the summary of what we're going to unpack here a little bit more. See, John uses this phrase, born of God, eight times in this letter. But he's never talking, he's never focusing on the positional truth that at a point in time you were born of God. He's saying that because at a point in time you were born of God, this should be the result or this should be the outcome or this is how it should affect your manner of living, your way of going about life. It should cause you to want to live life in intimate fellowship with me. So John hopes that these believers acknowledge their privileged status as God's children he's saying in light of this truth and so he reminded this them of this in first john 3 1 he says behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god and you see that exclamation point i'm not very good i have somewhat monotone voice and i'm not very good at getting that idea of that expression of an exclamation point there but it might be something like What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. See, my only way to do an exclamation point is to get louder. (laughs) You guys guys know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir there. We're called children of God. What manner of love? How could the God of the universe, thinking about our song even, me on your mind, who am I that the God of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? Who am I that the God of all grace? Whatever it says. (laughs) Who am I that God would care about me? I hope you stand in awe of that because that's what John is concluding this book here. He's saying, I hope you're standing in awe of this fact that you hold this privileged status as God's children. And the question is, do you see yourself as privileged? Do you see how privileged you are? You are a child of God too if you put your faith in Christ. Do you go through life thinking, poor me all the time? Or what if I could just get a break? (laughs) Why, Why is the rain cloud always hanging over my head? Why does the grocery bag always rip when I'm carrying it? You can get that perspective, can't you? When you're going through life focused on your circumstances and feeling sorry for yourself. Now, as a child of God, and that's not wrong, by the way. That's, it's wrong in the sense that it's misplaced focus, but it's natural. There's no way to avoid it completely until one day you're glorified. But... Even though it's natural, God is saying, don't focus on that. Focus on all your treasures. You are blessed with all spiritual blessings. You have been given access to an abundant life regardless of your circumstances. You are wealthy. Your bank account is loaded with treasure. 
The question isn't, are you rich? The question is, will you spend the wealth that's in your account? Will you practically make withdrawals from that vast treasure that God has given you in all of those spiritual blessings that he's blessed you with? None greater than. You are God's child and he loves you desperately. He's intensely interested in you. Now run that through your mind a few times when the groceries are rolling around on the floor. Is that such a big thing now? That's a light and temporary trial, isn't it? Compared to the goodness of your God. But why remind them of this fixed fact? So we are of God. He's summarizing the whole letter with this as one of three statements. But we are of God. Why remind them of this fixed fact? They're like, yeah, uh, we know that. We know. You don't need to tell us that again. We know. Well, there's a few reasons. But this is one of the main ones. Because knowing your positional identity, it should affect your present life. It should promote fellowship with the Father. As you see that you're his son, it should cause you to want to live life with him. As you see that he's a loving father, it should cause you to want to draw nearer to him, to involve him in your life, to talk to him about things, to ask him about things, to get direction from him for your life. Now, I know not all of you have had good fathers. Perhaps you had somebody who was like a father, though, who was good to you. But for those of you who did have a good father, isn't that true? That as you see his love for you, and as you saw his concern and compassion and care for you, that you wanted to seek his wisdom and seek his advice, seek his direction, seek his assistance, seek his help, seek his comfort, Turn to him when things were hard. Turn to him when you didn't know where to go. Can you relate to that? I can. I can remember a time when I was thought I knew it all. I thought I was all grown up. I was working at the LTV steel mine in the summer. I was working a lot of hours, 18 years old. And I remember getting up out of my bed and having some sort of excruciating back spasm. And it made me just scream out in agony and fall to the floor, tears rolling from my eyes. But you know who came running was my father picked his 18-year-old boy up off the ground, got me to my bed. And in that moment of agony, there's nothing, there's nobody I would have rather had respond to that than him. That's your heavenly Father. You have access to that with every, every agonizing moment in your life. You have him on standby, so to speak, to provide you, to pick you up off the ground, to provide you comfort, to get you through that hard thing. How foolish would it be to have that, access to that Father in your life and to keep Him on the sidelines and to not call out for Him and not to involve Him and include Him and spend life with Him and take His instruction and take His direction even take his discipline. How foolish. And that's what John is getting at here. That's what he's been getting at. And so as you look at another way of saying the same thing, it's why remind them of this fixed fact? Because knowing your parentage, knowing that you're God's child, it should affect your present practice as a byproduct of your present fellowship with him. And so in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, we see, Beloved, now we are children of God. So he just got done in three one, saying, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called children of God. He says, now we are children of God. So he's not telling them, how do you become a child of God? He's saying, because we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we brought out that that's 
primarily, primarily focused on at a point in time in the future when we'll be glorified and we'll see him as he is finally and we'll finally be as he is. But that there's also a practical application of that in our present life as we are presently recognizing and getting to know him more, seeing him more for who he is. That's why Paul says that I might know him. As I, as I know him in a more practical, experiential, and real way, as I know him and he's revealed to me in a clearer and clearer way, so that it's less and less foggy to me. It's the, the image becomes sharper and sharper. Then I'm, as that happens, and as I see him as he is, then I become more like him. Not because I'm focused on making myself more like him, but because as I focus on him, and he works in and through me, he transforms me and changes me to be more and more like him. But in the context here, the focus is this, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure and we talked about that doesn't that's not referring to human effort there that's referring to living life with him through intimate fellowship and as i live life with him it has this purifying effect on me why because he's the one that's pure and as his manner of living is produced through me now my life becomes more and more pure so my present practice becomes consistent with my position as God's child because God is making me into something that I'm not and my life is a reflection of him working in and through me. So as his manner of living is reproduced through me, then my life is more and more like his. Then my life represents his purity as he purifies me and his purity is manifest in me. So that's why. That's one of the main reasons why John is reminding them of this fact because John wants them to see this truth. He wants them to see that because they are of God and because of their identification as his children, it should affect their way of living, their manner of living. So another way of looking at that verse there would be, this is another translation, and everyone who is presently having this hope in Christ. So that's referring to that present fellowship. So everyone who is presently having this hope in Jesus Christ is purifying himself presently. So that's, what, that's a, a better way to understand that. That's another translation. But that purity can only be experienced as a result of trusting and abiding in him and enjoying fellowship with him. It'll never be enjoyed as a result of self-effort. See, Paul spent all of, if you want to read about his effort to make his life pure on his own, through his own means, instead of as a, as a byproduct of God working in his life, you can read Romans chapter 7. And as you read Romans chapter 7, you'll see the utter frustration that Paul faced wanting and desiring to do the right things and to live a life that would bring God glory, but finding that he was incapable of it. In fact, he was finding that the things he wanted to avoid doing, those were the things he was doing. Ever been there? The things that he was wanting to avoid doing, those were the things he was doing. The things that he was doing are the things that he wanted to avoid. And he says, O wretched man that I am. For I know, he says, that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells nothing good. Then he moves on to chapter 8 and he talks about, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that it's because of the power of God's spirit working in me that my life can be brought into conformity with the life of Christ. Because God is working in me, not because of me. Not because I'm trying so hard. And the spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom from the law of sin and death, he says in chapter 8. So that's what John is getting at here. And throughout this letter, John has consistently communicated the practical implications of presently abiding in fellowship and appropriating fixed positional truths. So we are of God. This is just a summary of what he's been trying to bring out all along. He's been consistently saying this. Practical implications of presently abiding are that your life would be brought into conformity with the kind of life that God wants to manifest in and through you. It's a byproduct, though, of abiding in fellowship. It's a byproduct of appropriating the position that you have in Christ. And there's many different times that he's been communicating this principle, and so that's why he's ending with this summary, because we are of God. He's not just saying that as a statement, we are God's children. He's saying, because we are of God, it should affect our everyday lives, the way that we go about living. And here's a few examples. This isn't exhaustive. There's many more that he's already covered in First John, but here's a couple we'll click through. 1 John 2, 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. 
What was he getting at? That there should be practical implications of present fellowship with the Father. As I'm abiding in him, it should be reflected in my manner of living, my walk, my way of life. 1 John 3.10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Now that's talking about influence, not actual position. The children of God, those who are operating under his direction, and the children of the devil, those who are being influenced by his direction. This is how it's, you can tell. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's not positional truth. He's not talking about that person is not a child of God. He's saying presently, the one who's not presently practicing righteousness, that person is not presently being directed by the influence of God's spirit in his life. How do we know that? Well, because God's spirit would never produce unrighteousness in your life. So if you're presently identifying with the world or the direction or influence of Satan, and can a Christian presently be operating in a practical way that identifies with the opposition to God? Yes. Can a Christian presently be practically operating as if they're playing for the wrong team? Yes. Does that mean they are on the wrong team? No. This means their present practice is inconsistent with their identity, their position on God's team. Think how strange that would look at a baseball game if the team that is wearing white was assigned to be batting and the team that was wearing red was assigned to be playing in the field and a few of the players from the white team were out there catching fly balls. It would be absolutely ridiculous, but yet that happens in the Christian life or it can happen in the Christian's life. Now, 1 John three seventeen. but whoever has this world's goods, so talking about love for one another, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Another illustration or example of we are of God. And if God was presently the one directing our lives, this wouldn't be true. But can this be true? Yeah, he's writing to believers about the way that they're mistreating other believers. Can believers mistreat other believers? Yes. Raise your hand if somebody in this church is mistreating you right now. Don't do that. Don't do that. All the new people will leave. They'll say, this isn't a very friendly place. (laughs) Can we all do that at times? Can we be insensitive at times? I'm doing it to you at times. We all can get caught up in our own thing. We can all become so focused on being right that we don't have compassion for each other the way that God wants us to. 1 John 4, 6, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. But this we know, the spirit, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is talking about present, present tense. He who is presently knowing God is presently listening to God's ambassadors. The person who is presently enjoying fellowship is presently interested in God's word. If you don't find yourself having any interest in God's word, I can tell you that's a bad sign. That's a good indicator that right now you're not walking with your focus on Jesus Christ. You're not walking by means of his spirit directing in your life. Because his spirit would never direct you to be apathetic towards his word when he says it's his word that gives life. If God is interested in you experiencing life to the full or life abundantly and that life comes from his word or is influenced by his word in addition to being he is the source of life himself but he says that the, the word of God giveth life. It giveth understanding to the simple. then would he ever direct you to have zero interest in the word of God? No, no, of course not. This isn't advanced algebra. This is just basic, count your numbers. Wand. So here's the next part of this. If we are of God, you should want your present manner of living to bring God honor and glory and be consistent with your position as God's child. That's what John is getting at here. He's saying you should want this. You should want your present manner of living to bring God glory. You should want your practical Christian life to be consistent with your position as God's child. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we make it our aim. This is our goal. This is our objective, whether present or absent. Now what? This is the objective. To be well-pleasing to him. He says the same, things in, same thing in Colossians 1, 9 through 12. We won't turn there. Is that your objective? Is that your desire? That's what John is getting at with this summary statement. We are of God. You should want your life to be a reflection of your position as God's child. You should want people to see Christ in you. Christ is in you. You should want people to see him in you. Now, here's a question. What if you don't? If you're sitting there today, what if you don't? Well, the solution is to remember a few things, and here's a few things to remember. Remember who you are. You're God's child. That's why John kept reinforcing that we are of God. We're sourced in God. He's our Father. Remember who He is. He's great, yes. He's powerful, yes. He's everywhere at once, yes. He never changes, yes. He knows everything, yes. Not the stuff that really helps in these situations, though. That's all true. The stuff that helps in these situations is He loves you. He loves you. He's intensely interested in you. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's gracious. Those are the things about him that will help you when you're not interested in living life with him. Remember what he sacrificed for you, what he's done for you. Remember his plan for you. Remember what you mean to him. Pray that God will grant you the desire to live with him and for him. That's not an all-inclusive solution, I'm just saying. Those are some things to remember if you're sitting there today and saying, I cannot wait till this guy finishes talking. Now, the second thing that John wanted to contrast is he's saying, so on one hand, there's the children of God. The children of God are of God and their lives should be a reflection of him. There's all of these things that God wants for your life. So we're of God, meaning we stand in contrast to the alternative. The alternative is the whole world, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And I couldn't fit it all up there. So the whole world or the rest of the world in, in contrast to the Christian who is one, a child of God by position and is walking under the influence of God's spirit by practice, in contrast to that, the whole world is under the influence of Satan. The rest of the world is identified positionally with Satan. See, the whole world is used very generically here to refer to the earth, its institutions, its people, and their manner of thinking. Values, beliefs, and morals, which are controlled and influenced by Satan. So when we get to under the, under the sway, this is a huge contrast from being of God. Now, the of God, again, was positionally and practically. Now, of Satan or under his sway, positionally and practically. So whereas the believer finds his source in God, being of God, the world finds itself in bondage to the wicked one. Instead of being sourced in God or being parented by God, they're in bondage to the wicked one. In John 8, 42 through 47, pulls out, that principle. I'll read it to you. Jesus said to them, he's speaking to religious people, self-righteous people that would not put their faith in Jesus Christ. They were undermining Christ's ministry. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Well, because you are not able to listen to my word. You're unwilling to listen to my word. It's the idea. You are of your father, the devil. What a contrast. We are sourced in God. We are of God. And he's saying, the rest of the world lies under the sway of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Basically saying, I'm perfect and sinless. And I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. That's the contrast that John is getting at here with the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The Christian is positionally in Christ. The Christian is sourced in God, positionally. The Christian ought to or should be under the sway or influence of God's spirit or God working in and through him. That was the first half of the contrast. Now he's saying, but, the alternative is, that the rest of the world is under the influence or the sway of Satan because he's their father in a sense. They're not of God. See, humankind finds itself subjected to Satan. The world is controlled by Satan. Satan promotes rebellion against God and excluding God from consideration. That's what Satan promotes. So John is doing this summary where he's been talking again about fellowship. He's saying, if you're living life in fellowship, then you're going to be walking under the influence of my spirit. You're not going to be walking under the influence of the world around you or the flesh inside of you or the devil who's your adversary. You're not going to be influenced by that. So that's why he's saying this. There's so much, like I say, in this, in this word. We are of God, but the whole world is not. They're under the sway of the wicked one. So the Christian is not positionally associated with unbelieving people who, as a whole, are under Satan's control. That's a way of looking at this. The believer's permanent citizenship has transferred to heaven. And John says this in his gospel, John 15, 19, If you were of the world... The world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You are not of this world. You have a higher calling. Do you see that? There's a, he says the same thing in chapter 17, verse 14 through 21. We won't go there. So the Christian is not positionally associated with Satan's control, but... The Christian is susceptible to the practical influence of Satan on his or her life. Christians are fully capable of living like the lost. The key to whether or not you'll be doing that is your present source of influence. You're either presently going to be influenced by God's spirit or you're presently going to be influenced by your sin nature, the world, or Satan himself. And so when you think about that, here's three favorite verses that I have on this, but Romans 6, 4 says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. It's talking about this identification that we have with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, brought to life by the glory of the Father, even so we also, now catch this word, should walk in newness of life. Is that guaranteed? That's why those that teach that are in error. It is not guaranteed that the one who has put their faith in Christ will be walking in newness of life at any point in time. That's a choice that you have to make. Who am I going to be influenced by? Where is my focus going to be? When my focus is on him and his spirit is the one influencing my life, then it is going to be a life that is characterized with being brought to life or newness of life. That's why in Colossians 2.6, Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. How did you receive him? Through trying really hard? Working really hard? No, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Walking in dependence on God to work in and through you, to produce something through you that would otherwise be impossible if it was just about you trying really hard. It's about getting your focus on Jesus Christ. And as you're focused on him and you're living life with him and you're experiencing intimate fellowship with him, as that's true, God will produce in you a life that will bring him glory, a life that is described as walking in him. And that's why in Galatians 5, 16 it says, this I say then, walk in the spirit. That's better translated probably, walk by means of the spirit. And while that's true, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Does that mean it's impossible? that you would be fulfilling the lust of the flesh? No, he's saying it is possible. But he's saying that while you're walking by means of the Spirit, that won't be practically true of your life. That's what he's been getting at. So there's only two possibilities. Positionally in your life, practically. Everyone is either of God positionally or under the sway of the evil one positionally. 
Everyone is either of God at a point in time practically or they're under the sway of the evil one practically at a moment in time. Neutrality is not possible. You're either of God being influenced by his spirit or you're being influenced by the sway of the evil one. The unbeliever is under Satan's sway by default as a result of his corrupted birth, but the believer has a choice to make every moment of every day. And this is really the choice. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness, you have a choice to make. Who am I going to yield to? Who am I going to allow my focus to be on? Who am I going to allow to influence or direct my steps? It's either going to be God or it's going to be the influence of my flesh or my sin nature. And John is presenting this contrast to remind these believers that because they are positionally set apart, they're distinct from the satanically controlled world system. They're free from his power. They can be practically set apart as a byproduct of present intimate fellowship. That's possible. And that's the only present state of being that's going to provide that joy that is full that was the purpose statement of this book. So the question is, what will you choose? And that's why John chooses to summarize or finish up this letter with that, this verse. Which one are you going to choose? You're of God. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Which one are you going to be influenced at any, influenced by at any point in time? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience here even this morning as it went a touch long. Pray that you would give us your vision. You would give us your strength that you'd keep our eyes fixed on you, that we wouldn't get distracted by ourselves, our circumstances, our surroundings, the world around us, that we would allow your spirit to be the one that's influencing us each and every day. In Jesus' name.